Accutron Watches present. From New York City, this is the Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture with your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. But yet, nobody's been back to the moon since Apollo. Um, And, of course, when you think about going to Mars, um, that is a Mount Everest for the human species. Um, We have got to solve so many problems in order to be able to send people to Mars without, you know, killing them. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020. Boys, the man who sent Tom Hanks to space is joining us today, uh, sort of, yeah. And uh, we're going to talk all about the final frontier and going up and seeing whether we want to go back to the moon again. Should we go back to the moon? We should go back to the moon. Yes, damn it. <laughs> the, the main reason to go back to the moon is, as I understand it, as like a way station. It's a way. It's a place to kind of drop stuff off and store things. You know, as a as a we Correct. launch. It's easier yeah. to launch from the moon if you want to go elsewhere. I'm really curious. We've looked to the moon for so long. Now we're starting to look to Mars. What comes after that? What is the next frontier after we've tackled Mars? Because that's going to happen soon. This is the big problem. Dark hole. Like we got like this, the Lower East Side. We got this, this uh, <laughs> nice little planet, right? And then we got this moon that's really close. And then Mars is pretty far. And then every – I mean the other planets are even farther. But then every, once you get outside our solar system, there's not a lot for like – Light years. Well, we voted Pluto off the island, which I thought was <laughs> wrong. Did. That, was, that was no good. I and, love Pluto. So I think the answer to your question is yes. It's on the way to. It's like the the it's like the way station or the uh, port yeah, well, authority so bus station. I mean, uh, the moon is our our pl- our sta- place we stop off like a Stuckies when we go to Mars. But what's the big idea? I mean, what are we trying to accomplish up there? It, remember, we spent something like two hundred and sixty-five billion dollars in today's numbers to send a man to the moon, and it was really all about just beating the Russians. It was in the and middle of the Cold worked. War, and it got everybody excited and inspired. Uh, it yeah. was inspiring. A president said something that we actually did. That was pretty. Wait, cool. wait a second. Right. We, why- we went to the moon, and and. Uh. Kennedy said it. Why are billionaires racing to space right now? There is a business uh, goal there. You know, like, especially Elon Musk's efforts seem a little more practical. He's not just going up to the Carmen layer and coming right back Indeed. down. He put but people into orbit. orbit. This seems yeah. exactly like what happened in the 60s. Exactly. Oh, when yeah. We were trying to beat Russia there. Except the new competition all... is between billionaires instead of between nations. Indeed. And NASA has no money. No money to do this. It was like 4% of the budget in the 60s, and now it's like right. one half of one half of 1%. But like you said, back then it was essentially an extension of the Defense Department, which meant you know, right. they had a big checkbook. What about how technology has advanced since the initial like start of the space race? Oh we're my in goodness. a completely but different were, those universe. Those guys were going okay, up in essentially— there, Mr. <laughs> Allen Wrench. <laughs> but there was guys who were going up in like tinfoil suits. I mean it's like huh? they were, it was nothing Yes, they were in, you know? Like it's it's really remarkable when you go to the those museums in Houston and in uh, Cape Canaveral in Florida, 
you see what they were actually traveling around. And it really is a little tin can. Well, I went to the Johnson Space Center once on a, on a junket for Space Cowboys. Remember the movie? With oh, Adam? sure. Yeah. And they put me inside the space suit. And that's okay. The the you're about an inch and a half away from in the helmet, but then they put you in the capsule, and now the window in the capsule is another like inch and a half away. Now you're claustrophobic. Now <laughs> you're like, okay, this was fun. Get me out of here. Did you and see an like, Accutron? <laughs> <laughs> I think actually they did have some Accutron timing pieces there. Uh, we're obviously going to talk about the fact that in the '60s this was created uh, and the instruments that went you know, with Chuck Yeager and to the moon and all of other uh, all kinds of places were indeed Accutron. Uh, instruments and we will bring that up because this is the Accutron show. That's right. And we'll be right back after this. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time, for those who blaze new trails. Andrew, welcome to the Accutron Show. We have been fascinated by space for a long time, and you're the man that knows everything about it. You've written the books. <laughs> uh, you've talked to everybody that's been and back. Uh, I'm interested, we were talking about before you came along, uh, the, the sort of the spiritual aspect of these guys. Uh, they've walked on the moon, and soon a woman will join them. We'll talk about that in a second. They've walked on the moon, or they've been into space, and they've come back, and they seem to be religious, some of them, or have found nah. a, a kind of nah. spirituality. Well, we're, we're hearing nah. <laughs> yeah. Now? That's actually a big misconception, uh, particularly about the guys who went to the moon. I mean, you have to think about it this way. And this is a place where I was actually off base when I started interviewing the Apollo astronauts for my book, A Man on the Moon. And I talked to every one of them except Jack Swagger at great length about their experiences. And I thought, you know, I would look up at the moon when I was first writing my book and actually lots of times during the eight years that I wrote my book. I would look at the moon and I would think to myself, my God, what must it be like to look at the moon and know that you've been there? <laughs> I mean, I felt like that would be what I called a zap, yeah. you know, that it would kind of blow every fuse in your head for a little while. <laughs> and I was, I was wrong. And where I, where I wasn't, where I didn't anticipate was that these men went to the moon as professionals. Okay. Mm -hmm. Most of them were test pilots um, or fighter pilots. The only one who wasn't was the scientist who went on the last landing, Jack Schmidt. But in personality, he was very much like the other guys in, in, some, in, in this way. And um, so they had a, a, a very, uh, God, I mean, it was an amazing experience. So several of them talked about, being amazed at the view, seeing your trink to the size of your outstretched thumb, for example. But at the same time, you know, the, the, the real mandate for them was to do the job and do it as well as they could possibly do it. So I always like to say, whatever it is you do for a living, you know, you three, Imagine doing the ultimate podcast, doing it with the prestige of the country at stake 
and with the whole world watching you. You're not you mean like spending... every week? Yeah, yeah. You've just described you every described episode. Described Tuesday, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Right. So you, so so if you if you do your job as professionals, then while you're taping the show, you're not thinking to yourself, "Oh boy, I'm in a podcast. Well, how cool is this?" You're thinking, "I got to do everything right. I got to, mm. you know, keep my eye on the on the time. I got to ask the right questions. I got to roll with the answers. All of those things that you do." as a podcast host. Well, these guys had to do their jobs under life or death conditions, but they were used to that from their years of experience flying high-performance jets mm. um, and some of them in combat, right? right? And so when they got to the moon, it was, you know, Pete Conrad, who commanded the second landing mission, Apollo 12, said to me that when he stepped on the moon, his feeling was, this is the right place to be. I'd been planning for seven years to get here. All my energies had been focused on doing everything I needed to do to get here. And now I'm here. Let's get the job done. And no yeah. other power had anything to do with that. It was NASA and him. And it was. Well, I mean, the point is that he was still very impressed by the experience mm. and the seeing the seeing the earth, like I say, shrink to the size of your outstretched thumb, seeing the, the starkness of the moon um, bouncing around in one six gravity. He, he loved that. He was laughing, you know, uh, throughout the moonwalks because of that. He was just having a ball. Um, and also he was just happy that things were going so well. But he wasn't about to come home and say it changed him. Now, there were two particular astronauts who did talk about a life-changing experience. One was... Jim Irwin on Apollo 15, who came back and said he had felt the presence of God on the moon and left NASA and became a Baptist minister. And the other okay. was Apollo 14 uh, astronaut Ed Mitchell, who said that on the way home from the moon, he had what he described as a, a state of altered consciousness, where he was experiencing the universe as an intelligent entity and almost like an organism. And... Mm. He left NASA eventually and delved into um, the field of, of the mind and psychic phenomena and lots of other things like that, the nature of consciousness. But they were the exceptions. Most well, of the, the guys exceptions, said, but in, in a sample size that small, that's actually a decent number of exceptions. Right? I guess you could look at it that way. And the second but, one you described sounded a lot like Kubrick, like Cure Delay in uh, 2001. So they kind of got that right a, a, a little bit, huh? Well, see, I feel now you're on to one of my favorite subjects because I feel that 2001 is the essence of the time I grew up in because the 60s um, and into the 70s were all about discovery and transcendence and transformation. I mean, exploration and discovery, transcendence and transformation. And 2001 manages to wrap all that up into an unbelievable, uh, uh, you know, package. Uh, largely, I feel through the strength of the nonverbal storytelling that Stanley Kubrick uh, engaged in. Yeah. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Do you think, in general, Hollywood does get it right, or what steps should Hollywood take to get it right to get space history well, correct and the environment and the mood? 
Yeah, Kubrick got it right, in my view, as a space movie. Now, I'm not talking about as a, you know, a work of art, which it is. Um, but as a space movie, he got it right through absolutely relentless dedication to realism. Um, right down to the fact that when Keir DeLay ejects himself from the pod, suddenly there's no sound because there is no sound in a vacuum, mm -hmm. in the vacuum of space. Most Hollywood movies make a mistake of somebody, key person in the, in the production, deciding that the real story isn't interesting enough yeah. or dramatic enough. And then trying to quote unquote enhance it. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah, the punch up guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, but I'm also talking about dramatic, um, dramatic twists. I was very unhappy with First Man because to me, having known Neil Armstrong to the extent that I did, and we were friends, um, that was not Neil Armstrong. And, and uh, you know, that's, as Richard Nixon used to say, that's their perfect right but I did not feel that it succeeded as a film. Mm. Armstrong didn't but, like doing a lot of publicity, right? He was, if you were friends with him, I think that's uh, saying something well, right there. Neil, Neil came out of, you know, as, as several of the guys like to put it, several of the other astronauts like to put it, he came out of his shell as time went on. Mm. Um, this is a person who was one of the most shy and private people in the astronaut corps. And yet fate, put him in this position of being one of the most, if not the most celebrated human on the planet for a, a chunk of time there. And, and actually for the rest of his life, one of the most uh, famous celebrated people on the planet. And he rose to that, that challenge with a, a lot of grace. Mm. And he basically um, called his own shots. He lived life on his own terms, which meant, that he did agree to talk to some historians like me. Um, and as time went on, as I say, um, he did do more, more interviews, more public appearances and seemed pretty much at ease. If you look at one of the last interviews he gave in his life, which is on YouTube down in Australia, um, it's great. It's, it's a joy. To, and the thing about it that the movie missed, the thing about Neil that the movie missed was he was he was not a dour person. He was serious, but he had a lot of joy in doing what he did mm. and, and moving, moving all of us, humanity, a little further along in our development. Um, and he had a great sense of humor. And, you know, none of that comes through in the movie. It's all very dour and somber and, you know, and I, I, just think it was overdone that way, but we don't have to spend. Well, it was an amazing breakthrough, you know, Neil Armstrong, you know, making that step, making that, that giant leap. Um, and you mentioned that this was this era in the sixties and seventies, an era we're kind of obsessed with here at Kachan and all, <laughs> but the, that sixties and seventies era was an era of frontiers and new frontiers opening after sort of the physical frontiers here on earth, you know, had kind of like, were, were being tapped out. There was this frontier up above, what do you see as the new frontiers today? Well, I think space is very much still a frontier, right? I mean, we're seeing uh, so much activity in Earth orbit that, uh, for example, SpaceX lowering the cost of getting into Earth orbit, um, making it 
a bit more routine. I don't think it'll be necessarily ever be routine in the foreseeable future, but certainly in that direction. But yet nobody's been back to the moon since Apollo. Um, and of course, when you think about going to Mars, um, that is a Mount Everest for the human species. Mm-hmm. Um, we have got to solve so many problems in order to be able to send people to Mars without, you know, killing them. And we may, we may kill them anyway, but you, you, you don't want to do it before you've really done all the work that you can to, to mitigate the risks. So radiation is a big problem once you go beyond the Earth's magnetic field. The reliability of all the systems on the ship for a round trip of three, potentially three years. We've never done that. We've never had right. a spaceship that doesn't need supplies from Earth or spare parts from Earth for, for that length of time or anywhere near that length of time. So it's going to be a while before we go to Mars. That's still very much a frontier. But let me offer you something else that I think is a frontier. Um, and Carl Sagan used to talk about this. We're a young civilization. In, in, in the broad sweep of time, we're still a young civilization. And we're still learning to, to rise above our, our wiring, our, mm. our origins. Uh-huh. And we live in a society today where we're not very good at coming together and getting along with one another right. if we have different belief systems. One of the things that Apollo showed us is that to be successful, you have to be open to real world information that conflicts with what you believe. Okay, <laughs> somebody once said, hold on to your beliefs, but hold on to them lightly. But we as a society are struggling with that. And I think that is a real frontier for us that's very important. The frontier of the caveman brain. <laughs> Where yeah, do we go right. from here? For us, it's to a break, but we will be back. We have lots more questions when we return with uh, Andrew right after this. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our legacy collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the Legacy Collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for the future. We're back with Andrew Chaikin, who is joining us and talking a little bit about science, a little bit about space, where it's all going. Once we get to Mars, what do we do after that? And uh, will there be any Accutron equipment on any of these uh, NASA or SpaceX or any private flights? What does he also think about the Billionaire Boys Club? But, uh, David, you have a question first. I'm very curious. I mean, I'm incredibly inspired by the Artemis program and its ambition. But what is the value in going back to the moon? Well, that's another of my favorite topics. You know, I was trained as a planetary geologist uh, before I got into writing. And um, I can tell you that the moon really deserves to be called a crown jewel of our solar system. And the reason I say that is kind of threefold. Um, And the first is that um, scientifically, it is truly the Rosetta Stone by which we understand, we're able to decode and, and, and understand 
the earliest history of our solar system. The moon is the place where that history is most clearly and cleanly preserved. In the, in the, all of those impact craters on the surface tell us about what was going on in the early solar system when in, the moon and the earth were being bombarded by asteroids and comets. So by going to the moon and reading that history, I like to say that it's like being led into the rare book room of the cosmic library. <laughs> and by paging through that first chapter, we can start to explore what conditions existed on earth at the time life got started and maybe help unravel that mystery. So scientifically, the moon is a spectacular place. And Apollo literally just scratched the surface of what the moon has to tell us. Um, the second thing is that the moon is kind of an outward bound school for allowing us to learn how to live off planet. We're not going to go to Mars directly. We've got to go to the moon, which is only three days away in case of an emergency. If you need to come home, if you go to Mars, you're stuck. You've got to go all the way to Mars go around Mars and right. come back. Matt Damon is, found that one out. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the moon, the moon is this incredible uh, learning ground, training ground, whatever you want to call it, where we can learn how to deal with things like all of the dust that gets into everything, <laughs> equipment, spacesuits, the radiation uh, threat to the health of the astronauts, all of these things that you need to master before you can think about going to Mars. And finally, the moon is the only place in the solar system where you can stand on the surface of another world and see the earth as a planet. Okay, when you go to Mars, the earth is gonna be nothing more than a bright star in the, in the, more, you know, the twilight sky. And you are gonna be isolated to a degree that no astronauts have ever been before. The moon is the place that has given us the leap in awareness about how precious and seemingly fragile our planet is when it's seen from that vantage point. And that's one of the great legacies of Apollo. And we're taking a woman back for the first time. And will she be the first out of the capsule? Uh, I, I, you know, that's, as they say, that's not my pay grade. That's for the, the people at NASA to figure out. But I'm very excited about Artemis. Um, I have talked to some of the people working on it. I've even shared with them some of the lessons of Apollo, particularly through the lens of, of human behavior that has been the focus of my work for the last 10 years. And they are so motivated. They're so smart. They're so enthusiastic and dedicated. I am just really hoping that this continues to unfold and that we really do see it come to fruition before too long. What are the astronauts of the future going to look yeah, like? Yeah, what's the right stuff now? Well, the right stuff is pretty much the same, right? I mean, you're still putting your life on the line, climbing on top of a rocket, um, you know, going out into the vacuum of space, going out of Earth orbit and um, being captured by the gravity of the moon to where you, you your engine better work when it's time to go home or you're stranded on the moon or around the moon. Um, although in this case, they're not going to be in quite the same orbit. They're going to be in a much different orbit before they go down and land. But you get the idea. So the right stuff piece is the same. What's different is the diversity of intellects that the newer astronauts have. And 
the, the sheer level of intellect and accomplishment, not just intellectually, but God, in, in almost every arena. I have a funny story. One of the astronauts who flew on the space shuttle and the space station told me that um, she was taking part in one of the newer astronaut collections not long before she left NASA. And she was listening to all these young astronaut hopefuls come in before the selection committee. And at one point she turned to one of her fellow astronauts and said, I don't know if I would select us today. <laughs> you know, it's we have just, that feeling getting, on this podcast all the time. Don't <laughs> worry. They're, they're getting, they're getting better and better and smarter and smarter as time goes on. That's brilliant. I have a question about uh, making from earth to the moon. You were involved in that production. Um, we think of, you know, these big Hollywood productions as being there's some sort of cool factor and there's these stars and the trailers. Was that maybe the nerdiest production ever made or was it was it uh, was it pretty hip? It was both. I think it was one of the nerdiest and it was also very hip. Uh-huh. Um, and and I'm not sure that anybody could have pulled that off quite to that extent other than Tom Hanks. He he is the heart and soul of that miniseries. I mean, I'm I'm just ever grateful that he um, he contacted me and, and used my book as the main basis for it and brought me in on the ground floor before they had even, um, you know, farmed out the scripts. And and he walks the moon walk, right? I mean, he's, he's genuinely curious. He is a he is a true space fan. We grew up. We're the same age. Um, we're born just a couple of weeks apart. But, you know, I always like to say that. Um, when I was nine years old, um, I would get into a swimming. Every time I was in a swimming pool, I'd pretend to be Ed White, Gemini astronaut walking in space. And I'd just kind of be floating at the surface, looking down at the bottom of the pool, pretending it was the Earth. Tom was nine years old in Oakland, California, with his swimming pool in the backyard, this above ground pool. And he was much smarter about it than I was because he would take a brick and put it in the back of his swim trunks to hold him down and breathe air through a garden hose as he did his face wall. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> wow. <laughs> but he was a joy. He was a joy to work with. He was, he's very funny um, and really uh, committed to telling the real story that the real story is always good enough. He didn't fall into the trap I mentioned earlier of, you know, thinking that you have to embellish it with made up stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think it shows in the miniseries, which has has got a very devoted following. I, I'm, I'm always tickled when people, you know, want to talk to me about it or they tell me about their favorite episodes. And yeah, it's, it's it was one of my great experiences in life. Would you want to go to space? And if so, are any of the programs out there now something, do they appeal to you? So the answer to your first question is yes. <laughs> Since I was five, and that hasn't changed. Um, and as far as to the programs that are on now appeal to me, I mean, that's not really the right question. Um, it still costs millions of dollars to be a space tourist. Um, and until that changes, uh, you know, or I get some kind of, um, you know, genius grant, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 
you know, it's not happening for me. So I'm just hoping to keep myself healthy. You know, I'm 65 now. I'm hoping that in 20 years, you know, I'll still be five years younger than William Shatner was today, <laughs> flying in space. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'm I'm ho- I'm holding out hope. Are we sending the right people though? Are these billionaires going up into space and and putting people in seats that are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars? Are those is that what the resources are really for? And can they come back and do any substantial good? I don't know that that's the right question to ask when it comes to space tourism, because it's private. They can do what they want. They can choose who they want. They they're paying for the seat. That's, you know, that's not something that the rest of us can pass judgment on. But any accident that could happen could set all programs back, right? That's always true. It's always a question of how the public will react to a spaceflight accident Regardless of whether or not the the number of accidents is more or less than a lot of other things you could be doing, right? I mean, people accept the fact that people who try to climb Mount Everest sometimes die, and sometimes because of stupid things that they did, right? I mean, a lot of times not, but, you know, and the public doesn't, you know, there's no outcry that says we shouldn't be having people climb Everest. Um, this hmm. is something that human beings want to do. They want to get out on the edge and whether it's through a space flight or something else. But as a as a lifelong believer in space flight and, and as a space historian, my hope is that it can become something that is truly sustainable and truly does open it up to more average folks so that more average people can have that experience, have that shift in awareness. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but, you know, um, and maybe I'm naive in hoping that, but that's where my head goes. I'd like to see it not just be um, a, 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 a joy, you know, I don't want to say joyride. That's that they get more out of it than that phrase suggests, but I'd like it to not be confined to millionaires and billionaires. It would be nice if it was something that truly was for all mankind, not for one guy. Yeah, I mean, but we're still very early, even after, you know, 60 years. This this year was the 60th anniversary of the first human space flights. Yuri Gagarin in Russia and Alan Shepard in the US. And in, and even now, 60 years later, we're still having to grapple with the reality that space flight is really really hard. Yeah. Hey, a lot of that space flight happened with Accutron uh, equipment on board. And uh, you were telling us before we got started that you had some early exposure to the products. That's right. My dad got an Accutron watch. Um, my memory is that it was around 1968, 69, that time frame mm-hmm. when I would have been, you know, 11 or 12 or 13. And I remember putting it up to my ear because he had told me it had a tuning fork in it. And I could hear that high pitched hum. And I still remember that. And it was a very elegant watch, too. Yeah, they went on a lot of uh, important missions, and uh, we all wear one on our wrists. So we're we're always curious when people have had exposure to the brand. And, and it has a lineage and a history uh, in on Earth and in space that's pretty impressive. Not as impressive as some of the things you've done. Uh, James Cameron called you uh, the best historian of the space age. And uh, that's a lot of baggage to carry around. But in a weightless well, environment, I guess it would be easier. <laughs> <laughs> it, it 
it, it's a it's a pretty pleasant burden to carry, I must say. <laughs> um, Jim Jim and I have connected about space many times, and he's a true believer as well. And he was very kind to say that in in his introduction to my Mars book. And um, I, I find him tremendously impressive as a human being. He not only turned himself into one of the great filmmakers, but he also, um, you know, science the blank out of going down to the bottom of the Marianas right. Trench mm -hmm. and one of a handful of humans to do that. Is The so, Abyss a good movie? You know, it's been a long time since I saw that. Movie, so <laughs> the answer is The Abyss is a great movie. Yeah. I just saw it recently. It's fantastic. Prior to us. Um, but Avatar, I love. I mean, Avatar is phenomenal. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. In advance of um, this recording session, I had an opportunity to watch your talk, How to Get to the Moon, uh, which I found incredibly moving and informative and enlightening, let's say. But at the very, very start, you said something that appealed to me on a more emotional level. You said, my Apollo heart. And I felt touched by that. And I'm curious, what brought you to such passion and fasc fascination for the Apollo missions? Well, I guess the answer is that I was so blessed to grow up at the time that the space program was growing up, too. And um, Apollo, the space program in general and Apollo in particular, was, the, was really at the core of my childhood and my, my teenage years. Um, you know, it just was the most captivating electrifying thing going on in the entire universe to me and um i was absolutely uh ecstatic to be able to meet some of the astronauts as a 12 year old kid just by chance during my first trip to the space center in florida um, i watched every one of the missions um glued to the tv with my little, you know, map to the moon and my models of the <laughs> spacecraft, like I had my own little mission control there in the den. And I never thought in those days, I, I didn't know what a space historian was. They, there weren't very many of them in, in that time frame. And I never thought I'd grow up to be a writer or a space historian. And I just feel like this has been one of the great blessings of my life to, um, to have it be shaped around something like Apollo. Yeah. Talking to all those guys on the Apollo missions as you did, was there any particular incident or moment that was a real like spacesuit soiling uh, situation <laughs> that you, you can recall? What's the hairiest thing they talked about? Okay. Um, well, I mean, Apollo 13, in terms of the actual missions, nothing was more harrowing than Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. And I found it very interesting to talk to, you know, Jack Swigert had passed away a couple of years before I started writing my book. So I didn't get to talk to Jack, but I did talk to Jim Lovell, the commander and Fred Hayes, the lunar module pilot at great length. And, um, you know, it's funny. One of the things that sticks with me about those conversations has to do with, what they said in retrospect about the mission, you know, Fred Hayes, it was his only space flight. 
He never got to fly in space again. And in his mind, it was no way around the fact that the mission was a failure. The rescue was a tremendous accomplishment um, because of what he and his crewmates did. But as we know from everything we've read and seen, it's also what they did on the ground in mission control in the back rooms. And he, he never really got past that feeling of the flight being a failure. Jim Lovell though said, and he, that was his fourth mission. Um, and he'd always wanted to land on the moon, but he said, if he had it to do all over again, he'd still want to land on the moon, but he'd also do Apollo 13 again as it happened because he said it was, the ultimate test of a, of a test pilot. You know, it's one thing to carry out the mission that, right. you know, as they say, the nominal mission. It's quite another thing to be faced with a life or death crisis and be able to get through it. Yeah. Andrew, you have gotten us through this. We appreciate it. There's uh, almost nothing we can't ask you about space, and we would love to have you back again whenever you want uh, to talk more about the next frontier. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch and subscribe to our podcast. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time.